From 11FS, I'm Sarah Koshansky and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you The Pulse Team Take Over the News Show, Standard Chartered Applies for a Digital Banking License, and Danske Bank Attempts to Predict the World Cup. All this on more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with Microsoft Azure. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. My name is Sarah Koshansky, and this is a bit of an 11FS Pulse takeover. So today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Ross Gurr, our Pulse analyst James Safford, and Lisa Matzi, who's a product designer here at 11FS. So how are you doing today, guys? Hey, good. <laughs> Thanks, Ross. Great. Lisa, how are you doing? 10 points for enthusiasm. <laughs> and James, all good? Very good, thank you. Perfect. Well, let's get started with this week's news. I'm already enjoying this show. All the stories we talk about today are from our 11FS and Fintech Insider community, fintechinsidernews.com. Check it out for all the latest industry news and sign up to get involved and discuss the stories with everyone on the show and in our community. That's fintechinsidernews.com. So the first story up today is Standard Chartered Bank are applying for a virtual bank license uh, in Hong Kong. This story comes from the South China Morning Post. And basically, um, it's as simple as it sounds. The Hong Kong Standard Chartered Bank uh, plans to apply for a virtual banking license um, that would make it the first traditional bank to have applied for one of these types of license. So basically, the context here is that the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, which is um, the the financial regulator there, uh, first mooted the idea back in February, borrowed heavily from the FCA um, with the idea of getting uh, more more competition in the banking market, Uh, plans to issue its first licenses by the end of this year, so they're moving quick. Other applicants are rumoured to be Alipay, as you'd expect, Tencent, as you'd pay, and perhaps Revolut, which is a slightly interesting one, not given, you know, their plans to expand to Asia, but the fact they're in there that, that early on is uh, is very interesting. So, um, James, I know you had some thoughts on this one. Yeah, so essentially, this is a really interesting situation in which uh, Standard Chartered are trying to nullify what's going on in mainland China. So predominantly around WeChat Wallet and Alipay, as you mentioned, who have also applied for licenses, but the ability to kind of offer a Um, an opposition to these services and to get their own kind of boots on the digital ground seems like a really interesting uh, way to combat this. So, you know, we we do have a little bit of a look on Pulse on on some of these products. And the one thing you notice about WeChat Wallet and Alipay initially is that these are these are services which are not predominantly traditional banks. These are, you know, e-commerce sites and and other such services. Uh, So we don't really get the opportunity to see how the big banks are going to look at virtual payments and virtual banking up until now. So it's quite an interesting little look. Definitely one to watch. Interesting for sure. I think, um, to James's point, I think it's ever so slightly reactionary. Um, I think, you know, there isn't, there hasn't been this sort of transformative, the impact that we've seen here in the UK, for example, in Hong Kong. I think they're looking outwards at the UK, definitely from a regulatory perspective. They're doing a lot in terms of private public funding, um, sandboxes, that sort of thing, and really trying to drive that initiative, like Charles Dorsey and the guys at Invest HK doing some really great work. But I think um, I spoke to Lee Wang, for example, at the Innovate Finance uh, Global Summit from Alipay. One of the most interesting things that she said was that people now in China, with, for example, Alipay, can pretty much live their day to day lives just with their phone and the Alipay app. And I think so, obviously. 
Standard Chartered in this instance are doing a little bit to try and catch up there. Yeah, I mean, to, to sort of bring it round to the, 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 the product element, which, you know, aspect which James brought up there, I think what's really interesting, and, and maybe you can speak to this, Lisa, is I think a certain amount of it is that Alipay and, and uh, WeChat and Tencent's products are really well designed and really easy to use. But I think an, um, another aspect that must be considered is that those services don't actually exist. The standard banks, as Ross says, haven't got there first. So, you know, do you have any thoughts on, on you know, if they're going to try and compete, is, it, is the product design as important now that those services are out there? I think it is important. But then the problem is that like a lot of people, if they haven't used products that are as slick as these, like they don't actually know what they're missing out. So they're just like, I'm, I'm just going to use what I'm used to use. And, and people get used to certain journeys, people get used to certain experiences. And if they've never experienced a really slick product design, they're not going to ask for it. Another really interesting part on that is the the kind of the range of kind of products that Alipay and WeChat have. Most notably, I think the 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 Jima credit rating system, which must really terrify the Hong Kong uh, government in, into thinking. Well, do you want to explain that a little bit? What that is, for people sure. Who don't know. So the Jima credit rating system is a social credit rating system initiated by the main social media providers and e-commerce sites, so Alipay, um, Alibaba and WeChat, uh, which gives a sort of social credit rating based on your expenditure, which can be used for things like going on social media dating sites and so on. So this is honestly one of my favorite um, kind of anecdotes to share with people that don't necessarily know is this idea that you can have your credit score on your dating app. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's pretty terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> have you? Yeah, well, no. This yeah, is yeah. this China. There's a system in this, the system that um, James just described in China. Basically, if your credit score is low as well, and your credit score is everything from how good your credit is to how well behaved you are, and how you know your rating is on a on a Uber or the, the Chinese equivalent, then they can ban you from traveling. So there are this many people who are banned from leaving the country. There are this many people who are banned from catching a train. Whoa. They actually use it as a form of social control. <laughs> That's some Black Mirror stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. The, the most horrifying thing about this must be is, you know, you get these systems coming into Hong Kong, then, you know, that's, you know, we have particular issues, uh, people thinking a lot of thoughts about kind of the annexation of Hong Kong and so on. Um, you know, what does this say about China's role within that, that area? And so this is probably a way for them to kind of stamp their authority back onto this market with the services that they know, so traditional banking institutions. And being able to um, kind of go toe-to-toe with Alipay and WeChat. And that's an awesome point, only because it kind of flips what I said about being able to manage your kind of every aspect of your day-to-day life, say, in um, the Alipay app. And it shows the sort of negative side of that, I guess. And that actually maybe there is a role for an established player like Standard Charter where that sort of trust exists to manage those sort of digital experiences in a more balanced way i guess yeah i mean i think it will depend the market will tell basically all these guys are going to have a go and interestingly they'll all be able to launch at about the same time so i think that the market will win out here sticking with china hsbc announced this week that it is going to spend 15 to 17 billion dollars um, by 2020 in a push for growth do you want to repeat that like how much <laughs> 15 to 17 billion dollars that's over the next 
three to four years, basically, um, in areas including technology and China. The explanation that was given uh, as this was this was released was that its space was HSBC is swinging from a strategy of cost cutting to growth. Um, the strategy is not overly exciting, I would say. The themes are pretty standard. The volume of spending is fascinating, and we've talked about it before. Do you actually have to spend that much? You know, we've already seen HSBC in the UK be one of the first movers when it comes to getting on top of the open banking. They have that connected money product, uh, which you can see, the journey of impulse. So they're obviously moving quite quickly over here. I mean, what do we think? Do we think $17 billion is necessary? Do we think it's just for clickbait you know what, what's, I, yeah uh... very much so on the on the clickbait front i think also you know we kind of said this i think sarah as well when we discussed lloyd's made a similar announcement although a significantly smaller figure you know it, it doesn't seem to be something that's aimed at customers it's not saying we're gonna like do xyz over the next five years it it seems to me something that's aimed at vendors it's just trying to get vendors excited. Like, we've got all this money come and pitch to us for all these great yeah. digital services. I mean, what? I mean, James, you've you've looked at the HSBC content quite um, quite a lot recently. Do you? I mean, do you think that it's necessary? You know, it's it's working. This content is work. Their spending is working on that kind of the products they're releasing to a certain extent. Like as you mentioned, there was the first mover kind of thing in terms of the incumbent banks here in the UK with connected money. But the other side of that is is that. The products are just not quite as slick. Um, so, you know, we've got the HSBC connected money seems to be kind of a direct response to Yolt. From what we've seen, the functionalities are fairly similar. But, you know, we look a lot at kind of onboarding journeys and integrating different banks, which seems to be the big play for a lot of people in the next couple of years is going to be, see, you know, the whole Monzo idea of becoming your kind of financial center. And everyone seems to be racing towards this kind of goal. But, you know, Yolt's ability to integrate with people like, you know, the slicker fintechs like Monzo and, and Starling and so on gives them a real point of difference because they can do the onboarding process really quick. Whilst HSBC connected money, they're, they're kind of they're integrating with traditional players in the UK. So, you know, you, you're going through a process of integrating with Lloyds. It's a bit, ugh, you know, none of these, neither of these sides are particularly slick. They've not really gone after the fintech products. And I guess one way of looking at the difference between these two is we have two two journeys in Pulse, one being from Starling and one being from Lloyds. And we look at the way that they integrate with, with Yolt in particular. And to illustrate the point, you know, the Starling process is super quick. You verify with a code and then you're straight in. And then the Lloyds process is probably double the length. You know, you take double the amount of time to get through and get aggregated onto the account. And it seems to be the problem there is the same for HSBC connected money. They've got all these traditional players on their site who aren't really doing anything innovative and they're not really looking for ways to do it. There's actually quite an interesting point within that because if they've gone live with a product where the journeys are suboptimal and they're only integrating with direct competitors so established sort of tier one banks in the uk you actually have to question the underlying motivations there so are they trying to deliver an awesome product for customers or are they just trying to capture market share from their direct competitors totally fair i mean i think i think what what um, stands out to me is that you can spend all the money in the world on a product but if you haven't thought it through define you know de- defined it effectively designed it well and made sure it's a slick and good user experience and validated it, doesn't it with matter customers. how much money you spend on it because no one will use it agreed i mean it, it depends on the value it delivers if it if it gives you actionable insights then i would say on some open banking research and we did rate all the, the big banks' journeys, and Lloyd's actually scored really high. And because I think 
you know, define slick. What is a slick journey? Like, does it mean like you, you only have very few steps or does it mean, I don't know, like the transitions are super smooth yeah. or what, what does it mean? Like, um, or is it a fancy design? I think it's it's really important to like acknowledge the the slick journeys of the big players as well. I think it is. I think the only issue is that so Lloyd's typically you know comes out looking quite good against its direct competitors, but really but, it's yeah. just sort of like the the best of the rest or the least worst. <laughs> yeah, ma- maybe. But then also like I think like we were talking to people and and they were saying um, I trust them because they have so many security steps. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it absolutely comes down to, as you said, the value it provides. And if you, you know, if it doesn't provide value to your customer, it doesn't matter, you know, to both your points, how slick it is, how pretty it looks. It doesn't matter if you spent 10 billion pound on it. If it don't work, it don't work and people don't want it. I think so, bringing it back on this one as well. So the early read, I think, is that it, this from HSBC in particular is not like a revolutionary strategy review. It's just about accelerating growth. And I think with particular eyes on Asia and actually their share price fell by, 0.7% because shareholders were disappointed that they weren't actually going to increase the dividend. They were just sticking with um, existing dividends. So it's really just an expansion package. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's just one of those things that, sounds, as we said, it's, it sounds quite clickbaity. But moving on to something that is absolutely clickbaity, but with a brilliant story behind it, um, Adyen is uh, the biggest European tech IPO of the year. So people who've been watching this, um, Adyen, which is a, a Dutch payments processor company, is to some known as the dark horse of fintech, but nobody is surprised. These guys are good. They are really, really good. They um, compete with sort of the likes of Stripe and to a certain extent PayPal. Basically, what they do is they enable companies to accept payments. Originally, that was uh, exclusively online, but now they've moved into offline point of sale acceptance um, with a partnership with Verifone. The prices is just absolutely astounding. So the market value at the IPO was 12.8 billion euro, which is about 15 billion dollars. So that that is not only like the biggest European tech IPO, but the third biggest IPO in Europe this year. This is, you know, huge, um, especially when you look at. So I wrote a piece recently about what Izettle's price might have been had they IPO'd rather than selling. And in the end, they sold PayPal for double their IPO value, which is only 2.2 billion. So it's uh, well, yeah. But my point is, Adrian is absolutely huge. Um, the shares are priced at 240 euro each. They reached 504 euro early Wednesday, came back down to about 400, only 437 euro um, by the end of the day. So, I mean, this is a seriously big company that's done seriously well. I think the question here is, um, there's two questions. One is, you know, who's going to follow? Are any of those other companies going to, you know, have been sitting waiting in the wings, fintech companies waiting to IPO? Are they going to come out of the, the gates now that they've had such success? And the second thing is, for me, it's really interesting that this isn't a really super jazzy, consumer-facing, Revolut-type product. This is a very, very good behind-the-scenes slick journey that solves a problem. So maybe that's actually where we should be placing our bets rather than on the super whizzy, you know, B2C products. Some awesome points. I think they're a fairly niche um, provider, but what I guess they're challenging the sort of big, the big banks and the credit card issuers because they've so long sort of controlled that payment processing space. And what's been so interesting about this is that it's actually up the share price of kind of direct competitors like Wirecard and kind of there's a lot of really good sentiment like playing in this space now, which is quite exciting. But the worry is at its current price, it's trading almost a hundred times its projected earnings after tax. And that's speculation. That's that is just a speculative. But that's bubble. not unusual. 
That's no, it's not, not unusual. And in fact, if you look at, um, you know, when uh, Square IPO'd uh, a few years ago, they actually tried really hard to avoid that happening and ended up underpricing their shares. So their, their shares were only like $9 each. Again, you know, it's all relative only. Yeah, I'm not sure that this is... So the, the point that, Ross, I think you're, you're getting at here is, is this a bubble? Is this too much? I really don't think it is. For what this company does and what it's worth and how much room it has to grow. I mean, it displaced PayPal as eBay's payment processor earlier this year. And now PayPal are eBay's baby, literally. So I, I disagree with you on this, but we will see. Yeah, we'll see. It's interesting in terms of like uh, there was uh, the idea of, of what, defines a fintech product nowadays in, in the sense of like the disruption element of it and all that kind of stuff it seems like adyen isn't really going after that disruption space seems to be just doing things very well as you said very much in the back end and trying to do those you know those basics and not really go about changing that much i think you're right i think from a tech perspective they're probably not disrupting all that much but what they are doing is disrupting the players that have kind of had that stranglehold on the the processing space for as long as they have yeah so um i'm i'm very happy with this but again it will be a wait and see uh, who knows when we'll we might be talking about them in two weeks when their share price has bottomed out and they'll be proved wrong but i hope not Moving on, our fourth story today uh, is eToro has uh, is opened up the ability to for UK customers to buy shares through its app. Um, and even better, it's going to uh, be able to buy them without paying any stamp duty. So um, eToro is moving to compete with the likes of Robinhood by allowing customers to purchase shares and hold them in the same portfolio as the ATFs, cryptocurrencies and any other assets that eToro offers. Um, additionally, it will absorb the stamp duty on UK share purchases and won't charge ticket or management fees. So for context there, stamp duty is usually about 0.5% of a transaction over a thousand pounds stamp duty is a bonkers bonkers british tax that started out being uh, charged on newspapers that literally had to be stamped to say you'd prove the tax it's now um what you pay on any kind of asset purchase so you pay stamp duty on a house as well the point being here all of that aside the point being that eToro i think is, is spreading its wings it's also trying to get people in by taking those fees away which is you know we've seen this strategy before i think you you get people in with you know a free product or a cheap product and then maybe you either introduce fees or value-added services afterwards um I, you know, I quite like eToro. I don't know what anybody else thinks about this broadening of services. Lisa, yeah, did you? I, I really like that. And I think, I think investing has such a, or buying shares is such a, there, there are so many obstacles to someone like entering that actually. And I think ju- just by remo- removing that like stamp duty. It, it's, it just becomes more accessible. And I guess also the, the good thing about eToro is the way that their product is designed is incredibly easy to use. So you can either follow other people's yeah. trading patterns. If you don't really know what you're doing, you can put a little bit of money in and sort of follow other people. And actually that little bit of money, I think, is important as well because if you've never done this before, you don't want to be throwing £10,000 at it. You want to be throwing £500 at it and maybe see how it works. Um, so I think this is a, 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 good, a good move on their part. Yeah, and if you've got like shares and cryptos and etfs and you know different types of investment products you can view them all under one in one single part and one ui like that sort of stuff i just think is really really key to getting kind of first time investors in which i think is is a key sort of target market for them again removing those fees is huge to that and those kinds of fees sarah to your point they're just old world yeah, I mean, I think even Yoni, um, who's the, the CEO and founder of eToro, was saying, you know, these, these fees are no longer relevant because they were literally stamp duty, literally to stamp a piece of paper. So there's no piece of paper involved anymore. So why should they charge that fee? I think the interesting thing for me as well as what you just mentioned there, Ross, is that this encourages more diversity of a portfolio. And if you want people investing, you want as much diversity in that portfolio as you can possibly get, because that's how you protect yourself. I mean, you're not not going to lose because you're investing. So you will lose at some point. But the, but if you can hold a wider variety of assets and shares, then 
then you know all the better i think it's also more responsible and for sure like the the role of etf seems to be growing in terms of investment products as well Uh, so you know any ability to increase people's exposure to these is going to be good for the space and you know we've got the wild kind of prices of crypto assets and things like that you know, having those etfs there kind of gives it a bit more of a sense of responsibility you know you They're, can invest yeah, a lot typically less typically more stable typically yeah. cheaper to trade so all of that sort of stuff i think another thing that etar and correct me if i'm wrong has done quite recently is they only used to let you go kind of long and short so staking yeah. position i think now they actually let you own so that's that's the, that's the more the complex duty, right? yeah that's the more complex bit under various investment legislation is that Basically, what they allowed you to do before is a very standard process in investment called contract for difference. And basically, you're just betting on the movement of a price. So you're not actually owning the stock or share, you're just betting it will go up or down. Um, It's incredibly risky. It's also um, quite hard to understand if you don't, you know, don't, you're not in that world. Um, This, you know, as you say, is is less risky, it's generally cheaper. And also you, you hold the underlying asset. So even unlike cryptocurrencies, you know, in this case, you actually own those shares, they belong to you. Whether they go up and down in value is irrelevant because you actually own something. So that's that's the other key thing here. Right, we're going to have a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility and scale using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. Now, on with the show. So our next story is Sarah's rant. It's been absent for a couple of weeks, mostly due to me being absent for a couple of weeks. But um, this is a slightly interesting one. So we, um, this is, I would like to have a short-ish rant uh, about Monzo's IFTTT integration. So we did interview Sam, Simon Vance Galina, um, which who's one of Monzo's chief engineers about this when they launched the product. Um, you can find that uh, interview on the 11FS blog. Um, for those who missed the story, Monzo has integrated a service called If This Then That, hence the IFTTT. Um, although I've been told it's also called If Triple T. So whichever whichever way you want to take it, that's the name of the service. Um, how it works is that users create an IFTTT account or they link their Google account to the IFTTT service. And then you can turn on what are called applets. Um, they're features or services that can then be incorporated into another service. So in this case, it's a Monzo account. So one of the examples would be... If you use your card abroad, the payment is taken from a pre-existing pot of money that's been set up rather than your main account, so you can remain within a budget. For those who use Excel, it's an if statement, basically. So I have, I think that this is, I think it's a really interesting feature. I think it's very, very clever. I think it has a lot of applications, but I do not think this is what Monzo should have been doing right now. My problem with it is how kind of techie it is and kind of how clunky it is. I have to go and sign up for another service. Now, you're all going to tell me that you already have access to IFTTT because you're all tech people. Most people who have Monzo accounts do not. Um, And so when we've been out and looked at uh, some of the commentary on this, a lot of people are very sceptical. They're either like, huh, what's that? can't be bothered to go and sign up for an account, don't really understand it, doesn't always work, as James and I found out this morning, we couldn't make it work. Um, 
So it's 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 kind of great. It's very appealing to the techies out there, and I and I you know I love that Monzo allows um, its staff to go away and build these passion projects, and they come live. I think that's really really great for the, the culture of the company, and I think it's you know keeps the employees very happy and, and interested. But the average user as we've kind of we've discovered we've been asking people is actually quite skeptical of this they really would much rather just have that promised joint account or you know can i please have a savings account that gives me interest so it's not that i the rant here is slightly different it's not that i don't like the product it's that i just think it was the wrong time wrong place and it kind of cements for me somewhat the attitude that monzo is almost a little bit exclusive so we're not going to give you a joint account we're going to give you something really techy over here that can do some cool stuff if you can be bothered to integrate it with something else everybody else go <laughs> i guess the, the the only point that i'm going to make is that they they have been quite good on their progress with delivering stuff over the past you know few months so i guess you know as you said it's a passion project then i've got no real problem with that as long as they keep on going with that big checklist that they've got the, the, I mean, if they want to be a full service bank they do have to keep rolling out those other things as well but yeah sorry yeah. Lisa so I think I agree with you it's very geeky it's very nerdy I think it's it's for very techy people and people who already know if this then that but at the same time I think it's a very nice take on how like redefining people's relationship with money and being a bit more playful and like taking out the whole like stress and anxiety that comes with money and having money and redefining this relationship. And I think it's quite nice as well that once you've actually managed... <laughs> so, you know, that's, that is a big that is a big hurdle, in all fairness. That's a big hurdle to get to use a new service. What I did... Uh, sorry, I interrupted you there. I'll let you that's finish right. and then I'll, ca- I'll counter that. <laughs> Please carry on. If you actually manage to set it up, it's, it, it's quite like you, you feel like you've achieved something and it's like, oh, wow, I've done this and now I, I, I'm defining the rules around my money yeah, so what I think would be, would be, and I don't even know if this is possible, I'm sure the tech people will tell me, wh- what would be much better for me and what would have made this a much more useful and broader appealing service would be if when I'm moving the money around in my account, a little notification pops up and that says, did you know you spend £5 at Starbucks every day, £5 at Pret every day, would you like us to turn on a savings pot as a result of that? So just in the app, and I would be like, oh yeah, maybe I will. Because that, that would be a much better user experience for me. And that may be coming down the line. I don't know if that's even possible. But it possible. could be quite intrusive as well, no? Yeah, it could be quite intrusive. I, I, it, I, basically, my, yeah, my, my, my problem here is that I can see the potential. I can. But I just feel like right now it's a like, because a lot of people will be sitting there waiting for that announcement for the more of the full service um, products to come out. And then we can start playing over here, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think what's cool about this is the the idea that basically Monzo has integrated the entire internet into their bank. And there is this completely limitless number of use cases now. You can either set up completely bespoke ones using if triple T. I mean, that's, I, that, that's my favorite one, Sarah. But also then you've got the applets. So there's basically sort of custom ones that sit there and you can just supply them. And the idea is that you can set one up that says... If I spend five pounds at Starbucks every day, move that money into a savings pot. So it's like prevention rather than cure. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still not sold, guys. That's probably because it doesn't work with my Google account. I can point out that James was standing next to me and I did everything right. And he was like, well, I don't know why that's not worked. I was like, great, moving on. It's a Um, very good harbinger for a tech company. um, Anyway, the the point that I think is most interesting is that, you know, it points Monzo right in the direction of financial control center. You know, the idea that you can have all these services integrated around your central focal point, which is your, your Monzo account. And that in itself is interesting. It shows a, you know, shows that their ambition is, is, is coming forward at this stage rather than further on down the line, which is what I expected. 
but you know that's that's probably a few reasons for that. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see the take-up of this because I have no doubt that everybody in this room has already tried it and had a play with it. I'd be really interested to see how many of the people who... I mean, you know, for example, the, the Monzo feature, which, you know, and Anne Starling, and they all have it, where you make, you, you spend... You put, tap your card and it instantly says you've just spent this much and you get an alert straight away. That is one of the most useful features in Monzo to the extent where my mum saw me using my card on holiday and she said, oh, can I do that on my bank? And I was like, not with Halifax, no. But if you've got Monzo, you probably <laughs> could. Other I banks know, are available. Halifax are going to launch it. But, but Sarah, you, know, you always like, say people need banking. They don't necessarily need banks. Isn't this a step towards that? Yeah, it is. But my point is that there are a lot of people out there who do some very clever things with financial management if they can be bothered to go out and look for it. But the average person who's in trouble and who's better help with budgeting does not need an extra fancy thing to go and log into and set up and understand. The average person who just needs it in a very easy to understand right in front of them form. So... As I said, we'll we'll see uptake. I think it's clever. I think it has applications. But so we're not we're not leaving Monzo though. Um, this is a, this is an interesting story. So the story is that Starling has copied Monzo with a gambling blocking tech. So Starling now offers customers the chance to activate a blocker as an opt-in feature from the bank's app, meaning that all attempted transactions to a registered gambling merchants will be declined. So Starling called it a first, but I'm fairly sure that Monzo did this uh, way back in May. Um, in fact, Simon, aforementioned Simon Van Scalina, told us about it on episode 218 of Fintech Insider, if you want to go back and check that I'm being accurate. So the, the basically bookmakers and on, other online gambling services have had to have systems in place to offload customers who have gambling problems for, for years and years um, and also to prevent them re-onboarding themselves in fact but banks and other payments providers have previously not been subject to the same requirements um, you know James I know you had some some thoughts on this as to, to how it works and what the how it uh, meets legislation right so the initial comment here is that you know there are there have been two different legislations applied uh, one for the kind of mobile element of online betting and so on and then the normal regulations for betting shops and so on and if you'll humor me I'll talk a little bit about the second option so my friend, actually, who was doing a PhD recently, decided in, in a moment of, of boredom to do some research into gambling addiction, which uh, seems like a, an odd thing, but hey-ho. So, and, and I remember being told this a few, a few times, you know, about what he was learning, and it was super fascinating, you know, the, the fact that the, the DCMS was um, regulating this. The Department of Culture, Media and Sport, or as they're now known as the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport. <laughs> so this body have been regulating uh, the retail space for betting for since 2005. So there's some reg- regulation in place there, but it's been really poorly distributed. And so much to my friend's annoyance, uh, they the gambling shops are finding ways around it. But there was, um, so for example, one particular instance here is of gambling machines having, you can have limits on how many gambling machines you can have in a particular betting shop. Mm-hmm. So the response to this was to go in and create more Open betting more shops, shops. <laughs> absolutely yeah. which and then the other side of this was the annoyance of the gambling shops who were saying well you're you're regulating our space what about the online space you know all these retailers who paddy power for example can run an app and it's you know we you're not looking after those customers are you so the really interesting thing here is that you know this um there is a paper from the Monetary and Mental Health Policy Institute, which outlined the responsibility of card providers and so on to to move into the space and to help people with gambling problems. So, yes, there was a blog post, I think it was the back end of last year, about how Monzo was going to deal with this and how the responsibility was there for to introduce positive friction into the product. So, you know, being able to turn off the gambling 
uh, block, as it were, is a hard thing for people to do. They have to speak to a member of staff and so on. And I think it's really fantastic that, you know, that the products are now defining the way that people are behaving in terms of gambling rather than government legislations which have proven pretty poor at doing so. Yeah, I mean, I really like that phrase, positive friction, actually, because when you th- when we talk about, you know, user journeys and, and product design, you don't want friction nine times out of 10. But in this instance, you do. I mean, to go back to my previous point, this is the kind of product that I think is, is useful for people to help manage their financial and in fact, mental well-being. Um, you know, okay, Starling have copied Monzo, but to me, it's it's a step in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that doesn't matter. For as many people to adopt it as possible, that's the main thing here, I think. I mean, I think... It was funny. The first time I read it, I was thinking about, do you know these the cars that have ignition lock when you like use a breathe, breath analyzer? Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. So if, you, if you've got yeah. alcohol on your breath, it doesn't, yes. the car doesn't start. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, is Monza going to do that next? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Drunk, drunk testing. Yeah. <laughs> no, you've entered your pin wrong twice. You've clearly had too much wine. That's the end of your spending for this evening. Yeah. But yeah. then I was like, people are also hacking these. So I'm like, you could probably hack your, you can just get out cash from your Starling account and still go and play, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you absolutely could. I think I think it comes back to James's point about positive friction, though. It's kind of like, if you add that extra step in, people might think twice. Obviously, if you, I think the other thing that's interesting about the Starling point is that if you then try and, as you said, if you try and turn it back on, I believe Monzo does the same, you get, you have to do, go through a few steps. It also says, do you just not want to dial gambling addiction help or, or, or I can't remember what the name of it is, but like yeah, a, a so help something line. actionable that takes you to, yeah. to, a, to a helpline. So just proactive. push a button and call somebody helpful rather than having to take that cash out or whatever. It's just that extra step. It is that positive friction thing. And just picking up on the, the sort of copying point, I guess what's interesting now is, you know, certainly the Revoluts, the Monzos, the Starlings, they've sort of, they've proved market fit. They've built fairly impressive, although not massively scaled customer bases. And they've built, I think, what are pretty good core propositions. It's really interesting to see the sort of iterative sort of builds now because they are just copying each other. So like pay nearby friends, we had Monzo.me, Rev.me, Settle Up from Starling. Now this, it's just really interesting to see they're kind of throwing things out there, seeing what sticks and then kind of all moving one after another it's funny for me because you know obviously in the process of looking after pulse content whenever a new product is released from uh, a revolut or something then i automatically have to think oh my god now i actually have to go out and recruit a revolut journey a monzo journey a starling <laughs> journey and so on um it just adds this extra layer of, of kind of competition between the groups i think i was just thinking like i i haven't gone through that journey when you actually opt in because it's an opt-in feature right mm-hmm. yeah so i wonder what it tells you is it like well done yeah, interesting. Like, What's the messaging yeah, around it? Is it positive like, messaging? How does it, it work? How, how do users even discover this feature? Yeah, that would be interesting to see. Actually, James, there's one for Pulse. See if we can get that in there. <laughs> I would love to give you an answer now, but I'm afraid I don't have one. So uh, keep an eye out. Yeah, keep what, a weathered eye on the horizon. Pulse. And we're sticking with Monzo again. We're, we've got a triple. Um, so the next story is that TransferWise's next partnership could be with UK challenger bank Monzo. So uh, TransferWise um, announced that it partnered with France's BPCE group earlier this week. Um, and there is, uh, there are, according to sources, um, in inverted commas, the International Money Transfer Service and European Unicorn uh, is working with uh, challenger bank Monzo. The tie-in would likely see TransferWise functionality offered within Monzo's mobile banking app, courtesy of the TransferWise API. Um, would give you the ability to basically send money to other people and other currencies from within the Monzo app. Uh, so TransferWise is, is going to be you know, a service provider here. So rather than being B2C, it becomes B2B. So you'd see 
Monzo, Monzo your friend's money in euro, Monzo your friend's money in dollars or whatever. Um, to, going back to your point, Ross, interestingly, TransferWise had a partnership with Starling, but that actually never came off because the bank decided that they could do it much better themselves. So this is really interesting. So it's not that Starling doesn't want to offer international transfers, it's that Starling, with its very, very tech-heavy team, decided we could just build this rather than use transferwise so that's really interesting for me it's not the services that are differing it's the delivery um i don't know does anybody what do we think about this like is is, is transferwise fighting a losing battle as a service provider here or do we think there's enough market out there for it to integrate with all these other banks and people i think there's a place for it and transferwise seem pretty happy with that mantle you know being able to be a service where people are coming through their apis and you know getting the traffic from that they don't seem to have a problem with that monzo very much very clearly want to as i said be your financial control center and and they are happy to take on that role i think it says more about monzo you know in the sense of you know how how incredibly willing they are to collaborate with people and and i don't know what that says in terms of you know starling wanting to build their own infrastructure and so on and monzo having this you know this tradition of building their own infrastructure but now seeing this as a pattern of being able to integrate with others yeah. Is that a, a, an opportunity to scale up? I agree. Or? And I fully respect kind of starting and deciding that they wanted to do it on their own. But I mean, you know, this is open banking. I mean, if TransferWise has an absolutely awesome API and the journey's straight through and super slick, then why not? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting uh, just what, you know, to, to just go back to some other. Other Pulse content we have, um, I wrote a report that went out this week on onboarding and how the, some of the neobanks are building their onboarding journeys. And Monzo there, again, is very, very willing to work with third parties where those third parties provide a service uh, you know, better than they could do themselves. Um, I think at the end of the day, as we said, it's what the customers want. They want to be able to send, they kind of expect to be able to send money abroad in other currencies relatively cheaply these days. Why not do it from within your banking app? Let's move on um, to uh, yet another neobank. Uh, this one is N26. Um, so they have launched a revised metal card. <laughs> Let me just explain this. So N26 first announced its premium card in December last year. Um, and the card was made available for, for existing N26 Black customers. So N26 Black is the premium product where you pay a monthly fee and you get extra features. Um, N26 Metal then came with um, literally what was supposed to be a metal card. Um, but the people who, who signed up for this product had many complaints about the design of the card um so apparently it was primarily made of a sheet of tungsten um but the metallic part was still surrounded by plastic and customers said what that meant that it scratched and the overall feel of the card it felt like a heavy plastic card the mastercard logo was apparently just a sticker so that was problematic um and then and then this article so we this uh, article came from originally from techcrunch.com and TechCrunch.com said there were issues with airport security because tungsten is an unusual metal. T- TechCrunch said this was surprising. But it's not surprising to me. If you've got a lump of tungsten in your pocket, those airport security are probably going to want to know what you're doing with it. I mean, what even is tungsten? Uh, well, it is a very, I think it's a very light, hard-wearing metal. Um, but that's not really the point. <laughs> the point is that this is the least luxury, luxury product ever. <laughs> but they're revising it. So the, re- the revisions will be the front of the card is going to be made out of actual metal. The MasterCard logo will be engraved and your name will be on the back of the card as opposed to the front. So basically what customers thought they were getting initially. First place. I, I mean, the question again here is like, I, I don't know whether customers are signing up for the card or it does come with additional benefits. So it costs 15 euro per month. You get um, partner offerings. So you get the advantages of N26 Black, which is like an insurance included um, and various other sort of low fees on, on uh, withdrawing cash and stuff. Um, but it also includes things like the basic $45 per month WeWork subscription. So you can... It's basically aimed at um, 
freelancers. So it's basically aimed at people who are, who are running their own business and freelancers. Is it though? Because for £45 a month, you get access to a WeWork office for free for one day, one a, day month. a month. Yeah. No, but you also get like plus extra days and then 10% off hotel bookings and promo codes You can for pay cabs. for extra days. I mean, like these benefits just don't strike me as like anything close to... The, dem- the demographic that it's targeting, I believe, is that freelance demographic who would want money off hotels, money off cabs, money off working space, and probably do care that their card is shiny and different. <laughs> it sort of seems like, you know, one of those coins that you get from the, the seaside, which you put a metal coin into a machine and stamps a logo onto <laughs> yeah. it. It's sort of, you know, like a novelty coin. Yeah. It's kind of one it's of those, isn't it? It's extra value. It's <laughs> just, it's just pretty. I mean, I think what they're going after is like the Amex. Oh, goodness, Ross, you'll correct me on this. Amex platinum what's the one that's the super Uh, yeah so you've got the american express gold preferred rewards card Uh, but i mean so the even the preferred rewards card is 140 pounds a month this is 180 and i think it's shiny it's glittery it's gold and glittery (laughs) basically yeah it's a status symbol isn't it the idea of the metal card is well it was meant to be but that's my point is that the the actual (laughs) the actual status symbol turned out to be less symbolic i find it interesting though that um all these fintechs are trying to outdo themselves in like the card designs like we have fluorescent with monzo and we have uh n26 with a metal core and then n26 used to have a clear card yeah they before, did and that right? was pretty cool yeah and that was super uh, cool. revolute doing a metal one as well yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah they've they got are. so but many different card designs you go through their like app and you yeah you, like, so you this spend is the a lifetime yeah scr- that's you right you can scrolling pick your, you can through card. but you know what i think so monzo were the first mover in this space and what they picked up on that i don't think providers have picked up on to that point was that well maybe barclays when they did the um, personalized cards you could put your picture on it was that the actual card that actual plastic card is a key customer touch point exactly so yeah. when you pull that out of your wallet the conversation starts right and it's also the really the only time now especially in the digital age where you're not going to branches or getting paper statements that you see your brand's logo it's the only time that you actually are interacting i'm doing air quotes i don't know why i'm on a podcast but we'll do it all the time yeah you're interacting with your branch or with your bank yeah it's really important i think this is the first thing that people see like you pull it out of your wallet and and people are like Oh, what's this? I've never seen this card before. And like TransferWise, I think on their borderless account, they have a neat, shiny green, green card. It's very green. And I think, yeah. <laughs> you can find it at the bottom of your handbag, though, I've discovered. So if you dump your cards, like, that's quite useful. That's a useful... Do you uh, know whose card was bright green first? Oh, let's not, we're not going down that road again. What about a glow-in-the-dark card? Yeah, see, I think a glow-in-the-dark card would be really useful for, for ladies who have, like, firstly, why a lady's handbag's black on the inside? That's useless, you can't find anything. And secondly, like, if it was glow-in-the-dark and it should be pulled out, it topped up, and then you dropped it in your bag, you'd find it much quicker that guy car designers that's what we want yeah but the, the benefit of monzo kind of picking up on that and going for the hot carl was that it basically pushed their cost of customer acquisition to zero because people were stood in bars going wait hang on what have you got that looks new and exciting and and i want one except i was saying this the other day um i think on on the blockchain podcast blockchain insider podcast it doesn't matter in certain countries so in the netherlands all their cards are bright orange so having a hot coral that it looks exactly the same to there, actually, a blue card would stand out. So in the UK, every card is blue. You know, it just—it's really interesting to see. Like, you know, it's—it's it's the idea of. I completely get the idea of it. You, you, you know, you. Everybody wants in, and it's much easier to acquire customers. But you have to then think regionally, and then my mind is like blown because you have to different cards for people in different countries with different demographics. Uh, so anyway, nobody's signing up for a metal card. No. no? All right. I'm kind of considering it. Okay. <laughs> 
when anybody takes launches in the UK, you'll be the first. <laughs> the first. Ma- yeah, maybe when it's actually metal. Yeah. So our and finally story this week is from FinTech Futures. Um, it's a story about uh, the headline is Brazil dances to victory in Danska's World Cup model. So Danske Bank have simulated the World Cup 2018, which um, we're recording on Thursday, has just started. Pet, what's the score? Five nil to Russia. Okay, had that here. Probably four days late. Basically, the uh, Danske Bank do this every year. They every four years rather. They simulated the World Cup a hundred thousand times, and the results in Brazil is their favourite to win. Uh, so the the bank's research analysts do this every time there's a World Cup or a major sporting event, and they use a model that bases based on economic fundamentals and apparently football related variables. I'd like to know more about those. Uh, and draws on data from the previous uh, five previous World Cup tournaments, um, and then they use the model parameters to simulate the upcoming World Cup and predict results. Denmark and Sweden. Um, are set to advance from the group stages before losing to Argentina and Brazil respectively in the round in round 16. Uh, there is about a 25% chance of either team making it to the quarterfinal and a 10 to 15% chance of making it to the semi-final and only a 2 to 3% chance of taking the FIFA World Cup trophy. So if you're going out to lay your bets based on that, you heard it here first. Um, do we have any any football fans on the panel today? Yeah, we do. We certainly do. Two sports ball members. Sports Two, ball. Yeah, yeah, eleven yeah. of sports ball. There's a there's a hashtag for you to go and find. Um, At eleven sports James, ball on Twitter. Do, do you do you agree with this analysis? Does this seem does this seem accurate to you? I'll be completely honest. Um, for me, I this is all fantastic, but I don't really want any economic model to make up a World Cup, Olympics, or Ashes predictions. I just want an octopus or a donkey or something like that to make predictions. Okay, I've got bad news because Paul the octopus died earlier this year so for those who don't know what Paul the Octopus is you're going to have to go and Google it on that note that wraps up this week's new show so thank you so much to all of our guests where can people find out more about you James do you have a Twitter handle or an email address you'd like to hand out Um, I'm on LinkedIn so just go on there and you'll find me at James Safford perfect Lisa how about you Lisa Matty it's M-A-T-Z-I and is that on Twitter or LinkedIn Twitter on Twitter perfect Ross, how about you? Um, at Ross Gallagher 07 on Twitter, rossger at 11fs.com. What does the seven stand for? It's just because six other people got in before me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as for me, I'm at Sarah Kashansky on Twitter. So as always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcasts at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Likewise, if you want to know more about 11FS Pulse, please visit 11fspulse.com or email pulse at 11fs.com. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.